You're listening to Good Lad Unscripted with your host. <laughs> Welcome to Good Lad Unscripted, the podcast. I'm Terry Goodlad. It's uh, it's been a couple days. We've had a lot going on in spring here, some traveling, but I'm back with an incredible guest. An incredible guest comes referred to by a friend of mine. Now, uh, I've not met this gentleman before. His name is Jared Hudson. Jared is a former Navy SEAL. Uh, left after leaving the Navy, became a law enforcement officer. Now he's running for sheriff in Jefferson County. Alabama. Welcome, Jared. How you doing? Doing good, brother. How you doing? I'm doing really, really good. Actually, we've been uh, we've been going kind of crazy over here. I'm setting up a new business, and uh, and I, you've done that before, I know. So, so you understand what that's all about. But it's it's good to be back, and it's really, really good to be talking to you. Been looking forward to this for a while. So, I want to open up, Jared. Uh, just give me a, a a quick overview of your your career as a Navy SEAL. Of course, you know. It, Anybody ever, there's two kinds of people out there, people that want to be Navy SEALs and, and, and people that are Navy SEALs. So uh, tell, tell me about that, just your career there and what you accomplished while you were there. Right. Well, that's, uh, yeah, we make that pretty quick and easy. And anything anybody wants to read, maybe a little more in depth, they can check out the shootinginstitute.com. That's my company website or Jared Hudson for Sheriff. Uh, dot com, which is a campaign website. Since we're running for Sheriff, I know we'll talk about that a little bit later. They can kind of, view maybe a, a more, uh, a better constructed bio of me, but a quick down and dirty. When I was, uh, 19 years old, I decided I wanted to, uh, felt called by God. I'm a Christian man. I felt called by God to, to join the military. My dad said, Hey, if you're going to do something, do something special. And not that joining the military is not special, right? That, that's a, that definitely takes a, a service, uh, centered heart or a servant's heart. But, uh, Bush had just started an opportunity to get contracts at the time to go, Navy SEAL, Army Ranger, Green Beret, you know, uh, MARSOC, uh, uh, Marine Raider, I guess it's the Raider program, or whatever they called it back then. And so Bush had just started that, I think, in 2004. And uh, we were, uh, my dad took me down to the recruiter and we talked with him. And I thought, well, that's to do something special. So I'll do, do one of these special operations programs. And I just went in order of hardest test to easiest test um, as far as physical and ASVAB and the SEAL the seal contract to obtain it it was the hardest test and i thought if i pass this this is the route i'll go if i don't i'll go to the next one um which happened to be air force pj but uh, i passed the i passed the test to obtain a seal contract obtained the seal contract and then about about a year later uh it normally takes a year to go through a, a bit of processes and all that stuff about a year later went into the navy uh and then went over to buds and became a seal and that's where i spent the duration of of my career got out in 2013 uh, there's a couple of, couple of reasons I got out. One, I was kind of wanting to get out and move back home, but at the same time I was wanting to, to stay in and, uh, do a few other, uh, programs that, that are afforded to, uh, to team guys, to SEALs in the, uh, in the Naval Special Warfare community. Uh, and in the process of going through some medical stuff, you know, they found I had type one diabetes and you cannot be a SOCOM or JSOC operator and be insulin dependent. So, uh, basically I was stuck with either being a sniper instructor at sniper school for the rest of my career. Or uh, and not being able to deploy anymore, or uh, or get out. And um, long story short, it was about a year and a half medical process. They found that type one diabetes came from the anthrax vaccine, or that's what they assume. And uh, I got a bunch of uh, medical benefits, retirement uh, type package, insurance for my family, and retirement ID cards, all that stuff. Uh, about a year and a half uh, after they found I had that. I mean, it was like a big process. They're doing all kinds of blood work and everything. So. Um, had a few TBIs in the teams from deployments getting blown up, uh, hitting IEDs and RPGs, hitting places where we're at. And uh, so they added all that stuff in, and I was able to be, uh, you know, taken care of on, on that end. But the primary reason was because of uh, uh, type 1 diabetes. Broke my back a few times because there was some rehab that went with that. So I did spend about a year uh, toward the end of my career, 2013-ish time frame into 2014, really, uh, back here at the Birmingham VA, going through a big medical process as they were trying to get me get my body back online. I guess if you could, you know, if you call it that way. Um, during that pro- during that time, I became a law enforcement officer, and uh, that's where I kind of started my career in law enforcement. 
here locally at uh, Shelby County Sheriff's Office over in Shelby County, Alabama. Right. Now, having it, uh, if, if you will, having it taken away from you like that, rather than <clears throat> making it a, a choice that you made, was that was that a bitter pill to swallow? Have you, have you, uh, do you have any thoughts or feelings about that? Um, I mean, no, I mean, yeah, it, it was hard. I mean, I miss it. My wife, my wife misses it because it's a very tight-knit community, and she talks about that. You know, she misses other team guy wives, friends. I mean, we're still friends on this day. You know, we're looking at almost 10 years ago. Uh, that I got out, but anytime I go back, because I still do training for the steel teams, I still teach them, you know, pistol, pistol carbines, CQB, all that stuff. I still uh, am on the training contract. I'll be at, at the end of the month. I'll be out doing some training for some uh, West Coast guys out in uh, California. Uh, so we're still connected to the community, and the community is like you never miss a beat, but you're you're not in the community, and uh, so that that is difficult a little bit. However. It, and I normally start off with this. I didn't today. We just went into talking about the team guy career that I did early in my life. And for the uh, majority, majority of my uh, adulthood in my twenties, I'm a Christian. Um, and, and everybody in the Southeast seems like everybody's a Christian. So I have to preface that with what I mean. I mean, I believe that Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again on the third day for my sins and your sins. And it's through him that we have an opportunity to be reconciled to God, right? It's through him we are saved. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's what I mean when I say I'm a Christian. I'm covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. And uh, one thing I do believe is that God um, engineers certain circumstances in our lives uh, for his sovereign will, right? So uh, Joseph says when they threw him in the well and he wanted to go to uh, Egypt, he was part of slave. He gets thrown in the dungeon. He wants to get out the going over all the land, becoming one of Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's main guy over all the land of Egypt. And he tells his brothers, what you intended for uh, harm or what was intended for evil, God used for good. And we see, I kind of view most of my life with that. So no, I don't have any animosity uh, towards it. It was hard in the moment, but not very hard because it was, it was things out of my control, man. You just know it's God's uh, and there, will, so you just move on, right? Well, I mean, yeah, there's that, but it's um, and people, friends of mine who are not Christians, they get upset at this. But I don't view. I'm not a. I, I wasn't a Navy SEAL who happened to be a Christian. I was a Christian who became a Navy SEAL. So everything I do, I view through the context and the lens of my Christian beliefs. And a lot of people say, "Well, we can't bring uh, Jesus into this talk, or we can't bring the Bible into this talk. You can't bring your Christian views into this talk." Well, I most certainly can because that's how I view my life. And if I truly believe what I read in the Scriptures then that's what I have to gauge my life off of. That's the road I'm walking. All of these other things are just uh, being a SEAL was something. It was a ministry that I had the privilege of being a SEAL in. But the goal of me being a SEAL is to share Christ with those around me. And I've, I was able to lead uh, lead other SEALs, lead other guys to Christ. And I still have buddies from the SEAL teams call me today and will ask for prayer over certain things. Um, even though I'm out of the team, out of the because they knew kind of kind of where, where I stood on it. So, uh, and it's the same thing in law enforcement, in business, and anything else, right? Uh, running a business now and, and, and working with a nonprofit um, that, that we started a couple years ago, my wife and I. Um, it's Again, it's a whole lot easier if you view your life through the lens of my Christian belief. Because it's not an ideology. It's a way of life. It's more than an ideology. Um, it's a way of life, and we all have the opportunity to accept or deny Christ. So what I encourage people to do is ask Jesus to reveal himself to you, and he will, and you'll be left with two choices. Either one, denying, uh, like, like Pilate did. The Pilate said, wash his hands and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Or two, accepting uh, and saying, and there is no other way. You're exactly, exactly right. You're the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to Father except you. Everybody will have that opportunity. Everyone will know when they do. And some people are hearing me say this and they're agreeing. And some people might disagree. I promise you, if you ask Jesus to reveal himself to you, he will. God will reveal himself to you in the person of Jesus Christ. So I, as far as animosity toward not being able to be a seal anymore, it, it, it has been difficult uh, at times because I, I, mean, I enjoyed that job. But at the same time, man, the Lord has provided unbelievably for me here, back home with my family, with my girls. I, I don't have to deploy for six months, four months, a year at a time, whatever it is. I don't have to deploy uh, with, with little ones running around. And that's a blessing that a lot of my buddies who are still in, they don't have. You know, they have to deploy. Right. 
And that's got to be that's got to be so hard on the family. No, no, and I'm right there with you. That's uh, we share the exact same belief system and and uh, walk in the same lights, walk in the same way, and uh, and so I completely understand it. And that's the thing; it's it's a hard thing sometimes to explain uh, because you really have to take that leap of faith and 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 just do it and commit your and and then you you actually see you can talk about the benefits, but. I myself, anyway, I have a hard time describing, uh, putting into words what the Holy Spirit does in my life every day, every minute of every day. Uh, but when you when you have that, it's just uh, it's just an incredible thing, you know. And, that, and it is how you live your life. I agree with you. Everything I do, I'm a Christian first, and then I'm a Christian doing that thing. So I completely understand. When you got out and you got into law enforcement, what track did you take there? What were you doing? Uh, so, long story short, the, the sheriff of Shelby County, uh, he's a sheriff now, he wasn't at the time, he's a chief deputy, his name is John San Diego. I met him uh, in San Diego, California. I'd been doing some work when I was in the SEAL teams with the Marshall, U.S. Marshal Service, uh, West Coast Regional Task Force. Uh, they came down to Team 3, we had a kill house down there, did some training with those guys, became good buddies with them, and uh, with that West Coast Regional Task Force, I started going up to L.A. and kind of just working with them a little bit, seeing their training pipeline, kind of the stuff they were doing, some of the warrants they were serving. Got to work with L.A. County. In the process, I met a lot of law enforcement guys. It was a long story short. Chiefs convention out there, they introduced me to John uh, because uh, they said, hey, you're from the Birmingham, uh, Alabama area. I said, yeah, I am. They said, well, this this guy is a chief deputy, at, uh, which would be the assistant sheriff or undersheriff, I guess, in, in some departments of Shelby County Sheriff's Office. We just figured we'd connect John. Now, this is probably – a year, year and a half before I got out, he gave me his card. And that was, and I said, Hey, pleasure to meet you, sir, whatever. Uh, so a year and a half later, when I go through this and I get out, I tell my wife, I'm like, you know, I can't, uh, I can't deploy anymore. I tried to do an overseas contract and I did. And it, and it, it, it impacted me very negatively because where I was at medically at the time, um, the anti-piracy thing came back and said, I, I'm not going to be able to deploy anymore. I've got to stay around and do this. I'm in the process of getting this med retirement stuff worked out. And, uh, so I went and talked with him. I found the card. I still had it in a footlocker somewhere or something. And I found his card and uh, called him. And he set it up. And I was hired relatively quickly. I was hired in about a month. Uh, it was maybe a little bit longer month, about a month and a half. Um, did the physical test, the written test, and uh, he hired me. Um, or, you know, he, he helped get me hired in that process. So I just started out as a deputy. Went to the police academy and, and did that for a year. Um, it definitely in my opinion, law enforcement could be one of the best jobs, uh, just standard patrol, the way it works, could be one of the best jobs in the in the world. But the, the issue that I've seen exist with it is most local agencies are set up to deal with petty regulation as opposed to real criminal activity. So uh, when you hunt real criminal activity, sometimes you, you step on toes. But uh, the Lord moved me away from that after about a year. Uh, I left. I felt the Lord really lead me to leave and, and run my business, which I had started during that time as well. Uh, so I, I just did full-time law enforcement for right at a year. So I want to, I want to track back to the law enforcement in a minute, but I, I want to talk about the shooting Institute. You, you are the CEO. You started, you founded the shooting Institute. Explain what that is exactly Jared. And, and, uh, from the perspective, it's, it's basically training, right? What, what is, what are the areas of training that you do? I, I've got a friend that is one of your clients, and, uh, and he's told me a great deal, but I'm sure there's more to it than what he's told me. Yeah, so we, excuse me, so we, we uh, started out as just, just going to do like civilian, you know, whatever, women's pistol classes or, or uh, guys like you're talking about, um, you know, whatever classes that they need, long range, pistol, whatever, just going to do that on the weekends for extra money. That was originally the purpose behind starting it. Uh, and the Lord really opened the doors and it materialized into something else uh, to where started getting asked for training for the SWAT team. We became the uh, one of two private companies, I believe, that could issue a state a state of Alabama basic tactical officer certification. Um, now I think we're the only private company that can issue that issue that basic tactical officer certification for the state. And so we started doing law enforcement training, did some training for a bunch of agencies up north, uh, New York, um, in New Jersey, a multi-jurisdictional task force. Uh, started doing explosive training, so teaching agencies how to breach. And I think we've certified 30 or 40 agencies in explosive uh, breaching techniques. You know, so wrote an explosive breaching manual, sniper sniper manual. So, I mean, it was 
definitely had me on the training. And then the Lord opened up another avenue, which was security. Uh, so we started providing private uh, client security a lot of times and even helping law enforcement agencies backfill uh, on, on security ends of, of things they might need. And then we, uh, then we opened up almost a, a gear sales side, which I've slowly started shutting down since I started running for sheriff because I can't manage all of these pieces. Um, and uh, we sell guns, suppressors, body armor, uh, you know, like Vortex Optics dealer, um, Griffin Armament dealer, SIG dealer. Like you go, so we started d- developing relationships with all these companies because I was shooting a lot of matches at the time. And then some of our other guys, like Christian, uh, that works with me, he was reaching out to companies and they were sending us stuff. We we're demo- demoing them at, at matches or at trainings, and people want to buy them. So we turned into a kind of a equipment sales company and firearms and suppressor sales. So uh, the three arms of the company now uh, are training, you know, the shooting institute, primarily based around shooting security, uh, doing a lot of security assessments for school districts and private security, uh, writing security reports and things like that. And then um, uh, the, the uh, gear sales side, which is uh, we kind of supply equipment, armor, whatever we suggest, whether it's agencies, military or, uh, or civilian. Uh, on the training side, we have three pieces of the training side. That's military, law enforcement, and, and civilians. We've trained every branch of the military. We've had contracts with all of them, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines. Uh, still work on an NSW contract, providing uh, advanced uh, close-quarters combat shooting uh, instruction for those guys. Uh, done sniper classes for the Air Force and some of their sniper units, especially security forces guys. Um, so we've done a little bit of, of all of that stuff. So that's kind of TSI, the shooting at the two in a nutshell. Gotcha. Okay. So now, obviously, these are all tremendous skills that are going to, you know, I imagine you as being my boss. If I was a cop, if I was a deputy, uh, I think I'd want <laughs> to have access to that. Going back to my career in law enforcement, I remember, you know, we always talk about training and how well trained we were. And the reality is, is once you go through the academy, and you're on the street, training is pretty sparse. Uh, when I got on SWAT and we started, uh, you know, doing our training there, uh, obviously it's a tremendous amount more. There's a, a large focus on on firearms uh, and then, of course, tactics and movement and stuff like that. But uh, training, uh, in my experience, training has been that thing that keeps people safer. It keeps your guys in the street safer because they know more. They've got more tools mentally. They've got more tools to work with. All the soft skills, and then all the all the tools that you use when you're when you're proficient with your tools under duress, you're going to use them better. But most departments, in my experience, for that guy on the street, don't really invest a lot of time in training. Would you agree with that? Is that your experience as well? And if what? so, I, what's your approach to that when you become sheriff? I say I, when. Well, I would argue. Yeah, that's right. There you go. That's, yeah, that sounds good, right? The old, the old name it and claim it thing, right? Amen. <laughs> um, I, I'll, uh, you know, I would say it, I think it's less that they don't provide training. I think they provide the incorrect training um, because there's always you can be a paper cowboy. Buddy, my Mike Rebel says this all the time. He talks about guys, and he was in law enforcement for like 400 years. He's old as dirt, uh, <laughs> Mike. Did. So he uh, he was with the. Uh, he helped start the Gulf Coast Regional Task Force under the Marshal Service here as one of the the lead uh, TFOs or the lead TFO, I guess. And uh, so he did that here in the South for a while, and uh, he's recently re- retired. But he uh, he would always say, "Hey, you got paper cowboys out there, right? Um, that, that literally they can go do a class online, and you'll have and you know this, you've seen it, you know, mm-hmm. guys within with agency or wherever that they've got." a million certificates um, of training in quotation mark. But when you look at the training, it's like, is that, you know, is that really going to help me when I get into the thing that I'm going to answer for the most? And those, and there's two of them. It's either a fist fight or a gunfight, or oftentimes in law enforcement, my decision to turn a fist fight into a gunfight. And, and a lot of law enforcement guys get upset when I say that, but the bottom line is, is, if you're in a fist fight, stay in a fist fight. You're the one presenting a gun into what is a fist fight. The goal is not to shoot somebody. The goal is to protect the public from any disturbance to the peace or anybody who's going to rain on their right to life, live their pursuit of happiness. I mean, that's the goal of a law enforcement officer. Now, we'll, we'll break it down when we talk about the sheriff's office and, and maybe a PD here in a little bit and the differences between the two types of officers that I've been finding out over the last years. I've been studying up on this. But 
Uh, either way, I would argue it's not that they don't have training. It's that they have incorrect training and leadership within law enforcement across the board because those guys have never, and you, you can probably tell me this better than, and I'm saying this, but I want you to, to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if you agree, you know, please, please say you agree because you have a longer law enforcement experience than I do. Um, the problem is, is leadership oftentimes has either one, never done what they're asking their guys to do or requiring their guys to do, mm-hmm. or two, they couldn't do it themselves anymore if they ever have done it. Most of them have it. I would argue 90% of them have it. I'm, I'm with you right there. I mean, there's guys that, you know, you get in that point where you're competing for promotion. Well, you know, they're going to look, look at your pedigree. When it gets when the, when the exam scores are close, the oral stuff, you, the assessments are close, you know, they're going to look at your pedigree. And, well, he's done this and this and this. So those certifications, whether you're, you're an, you can be an instructor, but you may not have ever taught anything a day in your life after you got that certification, uh, but it says you're certified. But, uh, uh, and it's the same thing with, with, you know, getting a position. You know, you may never have investigated anything of any consequence but if you were a detective uh you know you were a detective they don't look beyond that they don't look at the accomplishments necessarily but they just look at what you've done and and so that's a way is just to pad your resume as you go through your police career and those are the guys most times that you know they don't want to spend any amount of time too long in one spot because you need to have lots of stuff on your resume and in my experience that was those are the guys that are running things and and uh, and the guys that are actually doing the work the, the grunt the guys that are actually out there doing this work day in and day out and make a career of it that's where they stay so there's street cops and there's office cops right and and office cops are like you say they're paper cowboys right as a general rule well, but it- and we're, we're, we're past the time, so think of think of the name that was made for law enforcement during Wide Earth Day or even during, uh, you look at when they took down Al Capone, uh, or, or look at the uh, look at the guys, I mean, like the, the movie The Untouchables, right? right. That's a good, a good example. Like, you could not be a paper cowboy during that time. Or even, hey, there's a, and I read the, the story on it after seeing the show because I didn't really know much about it, The Highwaymen. I think that Kevin mm-hmm. Costner and uh, uh, Woody Harrelson Woody did Harrelson, The Highwaymen. Yep. yep. The Texas Rangers that took down Bonnie and Clyde, and actually that show, from what I read, at least the, the after I watched, I was like, I don't read about this. The story I read, that show was extremely accurate to what it was, and it showed the old hard nosed, real police work out getting the stuff done, as opposed to all the newfangled stuff, the office office cop that you see nowadays. Now we've kind of shifted that. You can't be that that hard nosed, you know, cowboy killer type cop, you know, no. for lack of a better word. The wider, if you think of the the highway men and, and uh, that took down Bonnie and Clyde, uh, that shifted. Well, and that's not a negative thing. That's that's arguably a positive thing, right? That that we've shifted from that to a more administrative role because law enforcement has made such a name for themselves that hey, just uh, on the on the force continuum, right? The threat force continuum, like that. If I show up, just the law enforcement officer showing up is a level of force, right? That that right. acts as a deterrent criminal activity uh, it didn't always used to be that way uh, and so we've now over the last i would argue 20 or 30 years have gotten to a place to where when law enforcement shows up that acts as a deterrent to criminal activity well guess what's going away that has been going away and i argue the reason why is because most of our leadership uh exude qualities of an administrative leader which there's nothing wrong with that you, you need that nowadays but they don't ex- exude the qualities of a, uh, of, of, of a real go-get-it leader. And the thing, everybody says the pen is mightier than the sword. Well, it's only as mighty as the sword that backs it. That's what Pompey said to the, uh, General Pompey said to the Roman citizens. Don't quote your laws to us. We carry swords for a living. Right. Right. And so uh, the words are only as good as the willingness of physical backing. Otherwise, nothing happens. And so what we've seen is a lack of, of, of consequences for individuals that commit criminal activity to society around, which is why I, I see the that administrative law enforcement officer, the need for proper administration is still there because budgets are larger. Uh, we live in a digital world, a digital society. That, that's very much needed, right? we got to uh, take reports and write things down and be able to build a case even. I don't, I don't argue that any of those things are good, but you're missing the first piece of it. And that is, no one cares about this. Don't confuse your rank with my willingness to break your jaw sort of thing. Does that make sense? Yes, it uh, does. And I mean, this, this, this was always so my argument. You know, you got you got guys that get in and, and they're – 
from day one, uh, and and I remember this. You know, I was a cop quite some time ago in the in the eighties was uh, was basically when I was uh, in police work. But then you had guys that were interested in getting degrees, and everybody wanted to be the chief of police. And and at the end of the day, you still there's the, the work still has to be done. And I always explain it this way: is that you know the guy on the street that you're dealing with, the criminal you're dealing with. He's a master at what he does. He's not restricted on what kind of weapon he carries or how many times he practices with that. Or, you know, uh, he, he's if, if he's he's expected to try to evade, he's expected to try to attack you. None of these things are. So he really has no limitations. And more and more, we bind our, our police officers on the street. Now, of course, we have to work within the letter of the law. We have to, you know, we, we should be bound by more because we have a, a greater moral responsibility and, and a responsibility to their, our citizens. But at the same token, you know, this is, this is dirty business. You know, we, we get our hands. It's like being a soldier, right? It's dirty business. You're, you're fighting people and you're fighting for your life and you're fighting for your country. You're fighting for these things. And so, uh, and, and I, we won't get into rules of engagement and stuff like that because I, I'm sure this would be a much longer show, but, but at the end of the day, you're fighting guys that are not restricted. So at some level, you have to be able to be, a, to be effective with them. You have to be, you, you can't be a guy that is a, what we call a paper cowboy. And what does that mean specifically? It's just, you still have to have that drive to catch the bad guy and, and do what you have to do within the letter of the law in order to catch that bad guy. So you got to be smarter. You got to be creative. You, you know, you have to understand the bad guy and to some degree function at that level without breaking any laws and, and in order to be effective as a police officer, in my opinion, that's what I think when you've got guys that have never done that, and then they're dealing with theoreticals and not practical application. So you can't improve the that, practical application if you're just always working from theoreticals. Would you agree? And that's, you know, and I'm not, oh, hundred percent. And I, I'm not down on degrees. Like I have a, I have an MBA, I have a master's in business administration. I, and I see the purpose and need behind, uh, behind that and having a thinking shooter as we would call them in the field things, right? You've got to be able to see the problem, you've got to be able to observe what this is, then orient correctly, decide and act, right? And sometimes we orient incorrectly, but we still decide and act, and then we, we try to fix it on the back end. It doesn't mean that it's a foolproof uh, plan, but what I would argue on the training side is you have the impro- incorrect training for the thing we answer for the most. I don't care how well you can write a report right now. I care that if you go out, if you have a Jared Hudson win sheriff, and you've got my name on, on your, you know, Jared Hudson's a sheriff, and you're my sheriff's deputy. You go out and you get in a gunfight. I care that you make the right decision of who to shoot or who not to shoot and that you're able to do it precisely and accurately. Uh, because if you can't do either of those two things, that's what you're going to answer for and I'm going to answer for the most. Right. So what I'm seeing in training law enforcement agencies across the nation is they spend the least amount of money and time teaching their people to do the thing that holds the most amount of liability, which is shooting and fighting. Exactly. <laughs> And if we if we spent more money and time on the thing that it, yep. it, it doesn't make sense, it's like it's a, it's a problem. And the reason is is because we have had it over the last twenty or thirty years, the agencies, especially local agencies, have changed more to an administrative role, which is fine because they have ridden on the coattails of what our predecessors, our forefathers in the law enforcement community, have done to where that uniform, that badge, that authority of just showing up was automatically respected. And guess what? That is that is going away and has gone away. So what has to happen? We have to earn that respect. And so I would argue the reason you see more of this administrative training type stuff is because uh, that is what that is all the guys in leadership currently know. Which part of the reason I'm running? I'll give you this as one last. I hate an- anecdotal, um, you know, examples or whatever. I hate using uh, anecdotes, but I'm going to use one. Uh, buddy of mine at a, at a local agency here recently. He was talking, he said, man, I can't believe this. They were going to, they said, we have to have, uh, we didn't have enough females in leadership position, which is equity, which I think is stupid. Equity doesn't work. Who's the best person for the job? I don't care if they're male, female, freaking alien from outer space. Who's right. the best person for the job? Right. That's who should have the job, right? Um, and it's also a black, white, Hispanic. Now, there's all the stuff that they have, and this is different in everywhere you go in the nation, but there's always some bit of equity. Equity is not justice, equity is injustice because it removes the best person for the job for somebody who meets their uh meets the uh uh, sectionality uh traits that are required right so 
That's kind of what this is dealing with. However, they have two women in interviewing for, for this job. And he said uh, one of them was a, was a really good candidate, right? One of these females was a good candidate, I guess. But the other female uh, didn't understand. Um, they asked one of the questions on the test. They said, what is, what is progressive leadership? Like she was having to explain progressive leadership. Well, for the captain's test, this is something that was on there. Now, number one, I would ask, who cares? Why is progressive leadership even on a captain's test for law enforcement, right? Um, because progressive, all progressive leadership is is someone who's not um, – they're not afraid to stand up to the status quo, but it's not status quo in questioning uh, the leadership of the agency. It's the status quo of society as we see. So, again, it's, it's, uh, it's, um, um, it's, it's driven by um, – it's, it's driven by trying to, if somebody works under you as opposed to hitting them with, hey, you've done this, this, and this wrong, it's trying to figure out softer ways to challenge that. Does that make sense? Yep. And the primary purpose behind it is to focus on positive affirmations rather than hindering uh, challenges. Well, it, that, it doesn't work. No, it doesn't right? That's work. The stupid and, and even in my NBA leadership 101, I wouldn't raise my kids that way. Because as I remove challenges for my kids and I just work on positive affirmations, what happens when they get into the real world that's not going to meet them halfway? Right. What happens when they get in the real world and no one else cares? Because right. if all I focus on is the hindering challenges, when you go out on the street and you get punched in the mouth, I would consider that a hindering challenge. There is no positive uh, affirmation there. And so it kind of I understand the purpose behind, behind the question. But it doesn't work, right? And so I would argue across the board in law enforcement, it's not that we don't have the money for training or we can't do training. It's that they're not spending. And when I say there, I'm talking about the leadership within the agencies and leadership within the civil government of that area are not funding the training that actually matters. They're not funding the things that really needs to be done. I don't need to be worried about positive affirmations uh, in teaching a captain how to Get, you know, give positive affirmations to the people that work under me. Right. Um, we need to understand that positive affirmations are good, but we cannot remove the hindering challenges that, that might exist. And, and the final goal of, of progressive leadership, which is not a bad goal. Again, it just doesn't work, especially nowadays. Uh, and it helps us find new ways to what uh, to approach traditional challenges. Well, Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. It's the same problem, different people. Right. Right. Um, so you're always going to have the same challenges over and over. It doesn't matter. You still there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. I'm sorry. My, uh, it looked like it cut out, but you always, you're going to have the same challenges, the same challenge that existed back in, you know, 1870 exists nowadays. It just is different people. And it might look a little bit different because of technology and things like that. Um, so why don't we learn from history and look, at how they dealt with these things previously. And if we go through it and spend time studying that, oftentimes we can find the right answer uh, to the problem. So uh, that, that's kind of my take on it. I think that training is something that has to be done, but the biggest issue with training is it's not that we don't have the budgets for training or the time or the ability to provide training. It's that the current training that's being provided is incorrect for what is required of the job of a law enforcement officer today. Man, I would have loved to work for you, man. <laughs> I might have to. I don't know. Do you take any uh, retired 63-year-old cops? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> now, I want to I talk about a couple things that you, you mentioned on your site, Jared, that uh, I think are really, really important things to talk about. Uh, you mentioned, um, and I think I know where you're going here. <clears throat> In policing, when I was a cop, you know, we, we talk about high crime areas, uh, like a physical you know, area. And so you draw a line around this area on a map and you call that a high crime area. And then what, when we get a, a number of complaints uh, and we don't, you know, we'll get the complaints, but a politician will get that complaint. He makes a phone call to leadership and leadership sends a group of people out there to saturate the area and maybe do a number of things after we've made, you know, a, a number of legitimate arrests. These are not made up things. Of course you go there and you just, send a lot of people into that area so you're bound to catch uh, if it's a high crime area you're bound to catch lots of people doing things they shouldn't do um, and then of course because that is not a tax generating area as a rule of thumb the areas uh, you know and you're short on people 
so you can't do that. You can't sustain that for any length of time. So you pull those people out, put them back on their regular duties, uh, you know, to cover the, because now you've got people that are paying high taxes that are saying, hey, where's my police coverage? You know, there's somebody speeding down my street. Um, so that happens for a while. We placate that politician and then we go back to business as usual. It was never necessarily really effective at changing anything. It, it improves stats, but really doesn't change the landscape insofar as crime. Now, you said something on your website and the terminology is not going after communities, but actually going, you know, quote unquote, uh, but actually going after the problem. And, and I think where you're going with this and correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, you know, within that geographical area, that, that line we drive on, or, or draw on the map, uh, there are four or five homes there that are problematic or groups of people that flock to those homes, the rest of the community are just good law-abiding people that are just living in maybe low-income communities and, and they're suffering from that crime. But when <laughs> when you just have this big saturation, there's really no, uh, it's not perceived, I think, by the by the community as, as, as a positive thing necessarily because there's a lot of police presence there because there's no discernment between what the problems are, who the, where the problem's coming from. It's just about going out there, making a big noise so that, you know, politicians, so the crime drops, you get some arrests, you get some stats. Now you go back to regular business as usual and they kind of get abandoned. What do you mean when you say not going after community, solving problematic high crime areas or high crime, you know, where high crime, where people that do a lot of crime flock to? How, what's your philosophy on dealing with that? So yeah, uh, so that's um, and, and I'll keep it, and I love keeping it simple because I'm just uh, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, so I try to keep it <laughs> as simple as possible. I'll debate that um, with you, but, but the uh, the biggest thing is we target crime, and that's the purpose of of law enforcement, and in particular, the purpose of the sheriff's office and the constitution officer. Right? We haven't talked about this, but you have municipalities, uh, whether it be state police or just a PD. They're code enforcement officers. That's really what they, they're there to enforce the code of the municipality. And oftentimes you see municipalities adopt, adopting state codes, uh, and you see the state adopt, adopting a lot of times federal codes, right? That's how we kind of see our, our, our laws generate throughout uh, different states and different areas. So codes in uh, California, per se, are different than codes in Alabama, are different than codes in Florida, uh, where you're at. You're in Florida, right? Yes, that's right. And then there's municipalities within those states where the codes are different as well. So uh, municipalities and state officers, oftentimes we need to think as a code enforcement officer, if you look at the true definition of it, as opposed to a peace officer, uh, the sheriff and really the U.S. Marshal Service, the law enforcement arm of the executive uh, branch of government, which is truly the marshal service, are really your two uh, uh, constitutional officers. Uh, primarily the sheriff. That's why they're enshrined in state, sheriffs are enshrined in state constitution. So th there's a little bit of difference there. However, for law enforcement as a whole, let's just use law enforcement as a whole. Um, they are there to uh, deal with criminal activity uh, as it disturbs the peace. The Supreme Court has a decision. I don't have it in front of me right now, so I'll paraphrase uh, what it is. And I don't remember when they came to the... Uh, uh, the conclusion of this, but they basically say the sheriff's office has three things that they have to deal with. That's courts, that's jails, and that's uh, investigations of disturbance of peace to the public. So those are the three things. A lot of times we primarily hear courts and jails for the sheriff's office, but there's that third thing, which is anything that would disturb public peace, their right to the life, liberty, and sort of happiness. Now I would argue law enforcement as a whole kind of works as a peace officer in that in that way. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, and what you're actually doing, you're doing a, the opposite of what you're called to do when you infiltrate a community and you target that community just because crime exists in that community. When the SEAL teams went over to get Bin Laden, we didn't target all of Pakistan. We went to his house, we went in there, we got Bin Laden, and we got out. We targeted him specifically. Anytime we did ops overseas, at least in Special Operations Command, we targeted specific uh terror cells, terror cells, whatever you want to call them. We targeted specific area, uh, uh, people and specific uh, uh, groups of terrorists, not necessarily 
uh, targeting areas. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it makes perfect uh, sense to me. And that that's that. This is why I wanted to talk about this. Is again, lots of times this is at the you know in my experience this is at the bidding of a politician. Uh, oftentimes. Uh, after being prodded by a special interest group, uh, they go into an area and and just, you know, uh, rather than go into that area, find out where the problems are and deal with the problems because that takes a lot more work. It takes it takes a budget. You have to assign people to that for some time. And it may be an ongoing thing. It might be a gang related thing. It might be human trafficking related thing. It might be it might be something that seems small on the surface, but once you start digging into it, it becomes this great big monstrous thing. And so that takes time and it takes effort. And it takes manpower and all like that. And so uh, now I've seen both happen, but but I was really intrigued by the quote, not going after communities, because it's, you know, I've, I've, I've been responsible for, I've been sent out to do that kind of thing. And it's not like you go pick on the whole community, but uh, again, the people that are living there that are law-abiding citizens should feel comforted by the fact that you're there. And it should be a sustainable thing then, if there's a problem. You don't just leave just because you got a bunch of arrests and you just leave now, because now those people are gonna get victimized more than ever. And, and so that was always my yeah. issue with that. Whereas when you go after a problem in that area, you don't leave until the problem is, is, is solved. Would you agree? Well, no, you're, you're, you're exactly right. You know, and so what you do when you target specific criminal activity or specific criminals, um, you, uh, I think how to, when you target those specific areas, you try to eliminate the criminal activity from an area that, like you said, you might have a handful of, of criminals in this area. Might be the, the area might be infiltrated with gangs. You target those specific gangs, not necessarily the people in that area, because all of the people in that area are not bad guys. But oftentimes, what we see is when we get put on an area to target, we view everybody as a bad guy. And so, um, and that's why you just see like a, a black community. Um, and I've talked with plenty of of. Uh, uh, folks in the black community around here that will say they, they legitimately feel that law enforcement targets them. Well, you and I both know ain't, law enforcement ain't out targeting black folks. We don't have time we'll for target that. Crime areas. <laughs> it just so happens. It just so happens. A lot of times the, the demographic that live in high crime areas, uh, happen to be a black demographic, like in the inner city up here. Right. Right. The law enforcement's not targeting black folks, but they're targeting the community. So the perception is because they're stopping every car because they, if, if I have a shotgun approach, I'm going to hit something. Right. And so they're stopping every infraction they see looking for that criminal activity. Um, and then when they find it, they, like you said, they spin it up and go out. It's symbolism without substance a lot of times. Well, that's and the whole point. That's the whole point, Jared, is that if you go out there and if you, if you first have intel and you know where the problem is, you go eradicate the problem. You go deal with the problem. But you can't just go into a community and say, this is a problem area. Go find the problem not for a bunch of street cops and, and, and patrol officers. You can't do that. It doesn't work because somebody's going to feel infringed upon and, and treated unjustly. And then now we've got this bad sentiment against cops. It's really, it's re it's really not fair, although understandable, it's really not fair because you're being sent out to do a job with really no tools to do the job. And arguably, and it's a, you know, in a Christian principle, right? It's in scripture, abstain from the appearance of evil, right? Yes. We don't want to appear as if we're doing evil. If it causes my brother to stumble when I eat meat, then I won't eat meat. And what you're doing is you strum a chord of bitterness in a community's heart that's already being run roughshod over by gangs or whatever it is. And ultimately, I believe it's the destruction of the nuclear family. And by the way, it's yep. not a it's not a white or black demographic or Hispanic. It's uh, because County Line Road, just up the road from where I live, it's, the community is completely white. The same problem exists that exists down in uh, uh, Gate City or East Birmingham or wherever it is where the demographics black. The same problem exists with different people. It's not a demographic thing, but we view it that way because that's how we're, that's how the media kind of guides it, I believe. And that's a lot of times how politicians got it. Right. So what we have to do is we have to remove that, that facade, that straw man argument that is community policing, because I can't go into a community that I'm not a part of and I can't effectively uh, police that community and, and we're not there to police anything anyway we're there to protect that's the goal especially of a constitutional officer is to protect the citizens of my jurisdiction from anybody who would choose to victimize them whether a tyrant government or whether a criminal on the street and if i'm the one that's in there victimizing them 
stopping every vehicle I see that looks a certain way that has a that has an out tail light or finding reasons to stop people. Am I going to find stuff? Yes, but is it going to negatively impact the view of the community? And am I raining on these people's constitutional rights to right the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness? Yes, I am, and I'm not supposed to do that. No one wants Big Brother breathing over their shoulder. We want civil government to help us when civil government needs to come in and help. The, the purpose of government is to protect. It's for the people. It's not to uh, uh, police the people. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and so what we oftentimes see and do and what we've been trained even to do in law enforcement is to police the people, in quotation marks, as, a pro, as opposed to protect the people. You only protect the people by targeting specific criminal activity. You eradicate that criminal activity, and then you move out. You don't stay in there, and you help build safeguards within that community through community partnerships. I believe it's through local churches, um, especially here in the southeast, but it can also be through through gyms, through schools. There's a lot of different uh, partnerships that you can make within the community so that the community can then effectively police themselves for a lot of these things that are small ethical issues, not really criminal issues. Right. Um, and so you target criminal activity. When criminal activity is gone or criminal activity doesn't exist in the community, I don't need to go in there a lot. We uh, help that community build safeguards uh, to uh, to keep criminal activity from infiltrating. Right. Now, I, I want to talk about, there's a, we're running short on time here, but I think these are important. There's two important questions I have for you. One of them is... Uh, more and more police officers have been killed in in the last two years. Uh, I mean, we're hitting records, you know, all the time, and it's it's almost a daily occurrence in this country. Officer retention is an issue, and also recruiting quality recruits is an issue. How would you solve that problem? Well, I think, and I think we kind of talked about it already. One of the first things is is uh, you know. <laughs> Men and women that work in this community in the law enforcement military community, they, they want a leader that they know has their back. So I, I, I get told this all the time, and I understand this because I feel the same way. I feel the same way overseas. I feel the same way here because I still work uh, law enforcement with the uh, with state of Alabama with the 17th Judicial Task Force. I was a reserve deputy for the last six or seven years, however long it's been since I left full-time uh, police. And so I still work that, and I understand this. And you'll understand this too. And the people that are listening, unless they're in, they might not understand what I'm about to say, but believe me, it's definitely true in the case of law enforcement. Folks in law enforcement, they ain't worried about going out and getting shot or getting beat up or getting killed on the job, even though that's a risk that exists, right? It's a dangerous job. Right. But they're worried about uh, getting hemmed up by their leadership because they made a decision that the leadership is not going to agree with. Dude, I always, that, my worst, the shift that I hated the most was day shift because I had to be in the office at some point and it's, uh, we call them white shirts, but you know, you got, you got leadership running around trying to find somebody they can bury or throw under the bus for something. And so it was this, this very, very toxic environment. And, just about every cop I ever talked to on any department is kind of the same thing. It's just that, you know, the, there's these, the, these guys in the office that are trying to build a career and they try to get themselves noticed by straightening somebody out. And rather than, you know, these people are out there, this is, these are the people doing the work. If something goes wrong, you have to, in my, I'm jumping in here on you, but my belief is, is when you're a leader, you serve the men below you the men that you're responsible for by making sure they have all the tools. If something goes wrong, I consider that to be my failure first until I identify what the problem is and then I can fix the problem. That's leadership. Uh, but you don't often find that it's the other way. It's like we're trying to weed people out. Well, in, in a, in a climate right now where it's, there's very few people, far less people want to be uh, police officers and sheriffs and be involved in law enforcement. Um, I think we have to change our, man our management philosophy. We hope to retain people and, and attract people that want to do the job. And you got to support your people. I'm not saying let them get away with stuff they shouldn't do. They have to know what they should and shouldn't do. They have to be very, very clear on things. And when they do the right thing, you, you have their back. You, you train them, get them ready, support them, look after them, make sure they're equipped to do their job, make sure they have all the tools, all the training, everything they need, look after them. And then when they get into trouble and a good, like I was always told, a good working cop is going to be in trouble. You're going to get in trouble. Somebody's not going to like you at some point. But if you didn't do anything wrong, back that person up. And that's really, you're 100% 
percent right. I expect when I go out on the street, I expect to. I might not come home tonight. That's just that's just part of the job. But to not be supported and chopped down at the knees by by your own leadership, that's the thing that always bothered me the most. Well, and that's and, and I get that a lot, and and I understand that. So I'd argue for retention for one recruitment, and then two retention of of deputies. In my case, you know, running for Jefferson County Sheriff, um, you you have to be you have to be a, a leader that the guys at least feel they're not going to. And I tell guys this all the time. You're going to be mad at me. I'm going to piss you off at some point in time, right? You're going to be upset at something that I say because nobody's always happy with their boss. As a matter of fact, most of the time we're always upset with our boss, well, mainly because as people we have the natural sin nature of rebellion to authority, right? That's why we're cast out of the Garden of Eden in the first place right. uh, is disobedience to God. But with that being said, it, it's not that you're always like because hey yeah, I'm going to do whatever anybody wants you know I'm not a you don't want I don't want you to be a yes man to me as a leader I'm not going to be a yes man to you just keep you happy um, however you have a leadership that backs you and backs your decision if you mess up uh, trying to do the right thing there's going to be very little recourse that takes place as far as your job other than training counseling this is what has to be done. But you're not in trouble for doing the the wrong thing, as you mentioned. And that's where most guys fall into. They're worried that they're going to mess up while trying to do the right thing. That shouldn't be a worry in our mind. I am doing everything I can do to do the right thing and just realize we're human and mistakes are going to happen. And especially in a, in, in, a, in a line of work where mistake could mean life or death, man, that is a heavy thing to go through, right? A heavy thing to have to deal with. Yes. If I make the wrong decision, somebody could lose their life. Um, I don't need to be worried about if I make the wrong decision, not only could somebody lose their life, but I'm going to lose my job and my kids ain't going to be able to eat. That is, that is injustice at its highest. And, and, and as, a, as a Christian man, one of the biggest things I pray for, that if, if God uh, has it for me to win this thing and come in, is that he teaches me uh, righteousness and justice, and he allows me to understand righteousness and justice in a way and apply it across the department, but also across the jurisdiction of Jefferson County as a whole, because that's ultimately the only way we can do it. Uh, righteousness and justice comes through God. But you mentioned it. You said a servant leader. Look at what Jesus did. He washed his disciples' feet. Yep. Uh, every kid he poured himself out for his disciples. He even he took 39 lashes, went to the cross, hung on the cross, and died for our sins. I mean, he is the ultimate servant leader. Uh, whether you believe in him or not, uh, like, like I do, I encourage you to, to seek Jesus. He will find you uh, and reveal himself to you. But uh, even if you don't believe in him, you still can read the story and look at the story of the perfect embodiment, the perfect archetype of what a servant leader should be. And that is giving up everything in myself uh, for the people uh, who who I am trying to elicit a following from. And first and foremost, the sheriff, that's the people, that's the people of your department. That's the men and women of, of in my case, Jefferson County Sheriff's Office, if I'm their sheriff, uh, running that agency. Now, I've got one more question for you. I love that answer, and it, I, I, I'm huge on that. In every business that I've been involved in, I've been in business since I left police work, and it's uh, I've always viewed it that way. I've not always been perfect at it, but uh, when you serve your people uh, in the security industry, when I got into security, that's, that's the first thing I found is that we had an attrition problem, and what I did is treated my guys well. I'd go out there, I'd spend time with them to understand their job so I could solve problems for them. And, uh, and what happened is the attrition rate in my division dropped dramatically. And, and, uh, and my belief was, is, and what I taught my NCOs is I taught them, you're here to serve the guys that you're responsible for. You're responsible for them. You serve them. If there's something goes wrong, I'm looking at you first, not them, you know? And so, <clears throat> and what it did is it changed, it changed the whole, changed the whole culture. In, in that division. And so uh, I'm a huge believer in, in that. And so that's very, very encouraging to hear you feel that way. I want to ask you about this. Now you can be firm on crime. You can do, you can do all the things that you can do within your department, but you still have to deal with the DA and you have to deal with judges. How do you feel you can, you can be firm on crime, make the arrests, have clean cases, you know, everything like that but you still have to deal with DAs and judges that are going to adjudicate these, 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 uh, these charges. How do you feel you can make an impact on 
them on that so that we get a system that works just as well because oftentimes i know as a cop (laughs) that was always my greatest frustration outside of you know the internal stuff of the department it was dealing with the court system where you've got you know da's that won't prosecute stuff because it's work and judges that go way 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 soft on on crime and and let people out that shouldn't be out that you're dealing with you know I, i mean i've arrested people and my paperwork wasn't done and they're back on the street already you know, so you get situations like that and back on the street reoffending. So how do you feel that you can, as a sheriff, when you are elected sheriff, how can you impact uh, through relationships, you, you know, your DA and your, and your judges? No, that's the, and, and that is kind of the, the million dollar question because that's what we see. And this is nationwide, right? This isn't just maybe in just specific local areas. I would say this is arguably, arguably a problem nationwide right Right. um and i would say the the biggest thing is one uh in my case as sheriff uh and i think there's a lot of sheriffs that don't realize this you have to know your role as sheriff uh which number one is in in the state of alabama and in all states there's only three states that i've been able to find that don't have sheriff enshrined in their constitution and that's uh uh connecticut alaska and hawaii i believe are those three states all other states have sheriff enshrined in their constitution the sheriff is the chief law enforcement officer of their county. In the state of Alabama, uh, the sheriff is uh, an extremely powerful individual in their county as it comes because you're elected. You're the elected law enforcement officer of the people. Uh, every other law enforcement type unit outside the sheriff's office, uh, basically, they they're beholden to the bureaucrats. They work for the bureaucrats. The sheriff's office is the only one that truly works for the people. Uh, so first off, I would argue, at least at the sheriff's level, uh, sheriff's office level, is understanding your role and the purpose of your role uh, in, in upholding and protecting the rights, the constitutional rights of the community. Uh, the, the second thing, and this would be law enforcement as a whole, is understanding, you know, who you are and what you do. So a buddy of mine said this morning, he's, uh, uh, he works for Huntsville uh, Police Department in Huntsville, Alabama, and he does a lot of special crime task force and all that stuff. And he's, uh, he has an MBA in criminal justice and he spends a lot of time, uh, kind of reading through at least Alabama criminal code, federal criminal code to try to figure out, you know, what he can and can't do a lot of Supreme court decisions. I mean, he spends a lot of time studying this. So he's relatively well-versed in, in this stuff. And he said to me, uh, he said, one of the biggest issues that, that we, uh, that he sees, I guess, you know, uh, at least on the, on the PD side, and you mentioned this already, is that the district attorney or the politicians or whoever it is will say, you know, they'll run their mouth. You know, they're like a little dog barking. You know, these are a bunch of dudes who can't win a fist fight, much less a gunfight, and they run their mouth without any fear of repercussions. And as soon as somebody says or does something that they get upset about and they don't like, they turn to law enforcement and say, go get them, boys. And so as law enforcement officers, even to the lowest level, we have to be in a position to say, no, I'm not going to get, just because you're running your mouth and you don't like what somebody said or did, right? You can't use the system to attack those political or personal opponents. And we see that happen regularly, regularly across the nation. We see that happening uh, in, uh, within the court systems with district attorneys and prosecutors. So I would argue the first thing is just because the prosecutor calls the sheriff's office and says, hey, I need you to go get this guy. That doesn't mean I'm going to go get him. We'll look at it and we'll see because I have to interpret the law as well. Um, I don't need to give up my, uh, my role and my authority to interpret what is a disturbance to the peace for the people uh, of my county to somebody else. Uh, and, and that's oftentimes what you've seen. You've seen law enforcement officials or law enforcement leaders give that right up to somebody else. And they basically, they're just a dog on the leash. And when the, when who they perceive to be their boss says, go get them, they let them off the leash, they go get them. That's not, that's not the way it should be, especially with the sheriff's office. Um, because the, the, my boss, my supervisor are the people that elected, uh, as, as the sheriff. Uh, now police department is different, but it, still can be viewed the same. Um, it, uh, it's, uh, you know, you look at, look at Hitler's Germany. Uh, the, I read a book. I can't remember the name of the book, but it was the, it was the only book I've been able to find from the interviews, perpetrators of the Holocaust. These are guys that, this is not, not a, a Jewish person who survived and wrote a book after. These are the guys who 
actively hunted Jewish people. And most of them were regular folks. And it wasn't the SS and the military that hunted the Jewish people in the land. It was law enforcement. And every single one of them, the interviewer said, well, we were just, we, I was following orders. They were following orders. They wound up, they were shooting women, women and kids. One guy said I could easily, my neighbor could shoot the mamas because he couldn't shoot kids. The guy that worked with him, my father could shoot the mamas because he couldn't shoot the kids. And I could shoot the kids because I just could justify that there's no way this kid should live without a mother. That's how they justify. Now that's an extreme example, but what was happening? The bureaucrats at the top that never went out and did that dirty work said, go get them boys. And they let the dog off the leash. And what do these guys do? Even against their conscience, they still did it under following orders. Now, I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen in this nation, but it happened before, and we have to, as law enforcement officers, be able to wade through the stupidity that we hear around us and believing that we've got to do what a judge or a district attorney says, especially at the sheriff's office. No, I was elected just like you, judge or district attorney. Uh, you want to you want to go you want to go get this guy? I'm not getting this guy because this is. This is wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah, so absolutely. Think, the thing is, Jared, is that there's so many. I mean, there are sheriffs that are quite outspoken about that very fact, and, and they don't become pawns in this. And there's others that I think in the back of their mind, I don't know what they're thinking, if they think that's going to advance their careers or whatever the case may be. But uh, I agree with you 100%. You are an elected official. It's very, very different than being a municipal police department. And and so you do have that right to, and, and you do do have, I, I see it as a responsibility to protect the citizens, to protect our constitution, sometimes even from the people that we work with. 100%. And I would argue, especially for the constitutional officer, which is the sheriff's office and on the federal side, the U.S. Marshal Service, um, uh, even uh, pr- primarily to protect from the people that we oftentimes uh, work for and work, work with because uh, you know, give 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 an easy example, right? There, and there's a lot of states making this illegal now. And there's the you know the civil uh, asset forfeiture, right, or, or civil asset seizure type funds, right? Well, we're gonna uh, we're we're not gonna charge you any criminal charges. We found drugs and money. We're gonna keep your cash, and there is no criminal prosecution to it. Now, this is a again a poorly constructed example. But even Justice Scalia, he's come out and said, "Hey, that's against the Fifth Amendment," and it truly is the mm-hmm. Fifth Amendment, of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, says that we can't, without due process, seize a citizen's um, stuff, seize their assets. And yet you see that happening a lot within law enforcement. We find an excuse to do that. Well, that the, the Constitution governs the government and what they can and can't do. It's not a not a privilege. So just because this person's commit criminal activity, uh, it's injustice and it's not right to seize their, their assets. So I would argue a lot of times uh, the court systems and prosecutors, they do the same thing. They say, hey, you know what? We're going to throw this out. You're still going to pay your court fees. You're still going to come through the system. You're not going to go to jail, but they're still seizing. It's almost uh, in, in direct contradiction to the Fifth Amendment. They're almost seizing their, 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 their right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. They're seizing their assets or money because guess what they have to do? They're not getting charged with any criminal activity uh, because they're going to throw it out. But you know what they do? They still have to come to court. They still have to pay the court fees. And what does it do? It throws them in the system and in a circle that's never ending. Because what do they got to do? They got to go back out, swing dope again to make money, to pay off whatever it is. Or if they don't pay it off or appear to court, they get a failure to appear warrant. And then you got a bunch of guys with guns coming after you for an FTA. I mean, it's a never-ending system. Right. And that's injustice. It shouldn't be done. We could talk all day, but I'll suffice it with this. Uh, we need more good men like you, Jared, running for office. Uh, I think you're going to be a, a tremendous sheriff. Now, this is uh, when is the election? So uh, right now, there were there were a handful of guys trying to qualify for the Republican uh, nominee. I want to be the only one that qualified, so I'm not uh, in a primary or my primary is over, whatever you want to say. It, that's, I'm not going to be on the ballot coming up in May. There is a May 24th primary where they're going to pick their Democrat opponent or whoever my Democrat opponent is going to be, which will most likely be the incumbent. And uh, then we'll be running basically May 24th or June 21st if they go into a runoff uh, all the way to November the 8th. So it'll be the midterm elections. November the 8th is when my name will be on the ballot and I will actually be uh, campaigning You know, here hard in about the next month or two, depending on what happens with uh, the Democrat primary. Gotcha. Now, if you're in Jefferson County, Alabama, 
take a serious look at at uh, Jared. Not you know, regardless of political affiliation, I think it's we have to at some point start looking at the right person for the job. And uh, and I mean, there's there's so much here that is uh, apart from politics. It's just the philosophy on what's right and wrong and uh, and not only uh, what we're doing out on the street but also what we're doing for the people that are going out there and protecting us and and uh, i think you're the right guy i mean like i say if i wasn't 63 i'd be lining up to uh to work for you so uh, i really appreciate you being on the show jared um I'm going to put all your links below for anybody that wants to follow jared and i, I encourage you to do so um even if you're interested in the Shooting Institute, I encourage you to go train with him. He's incredible. Uh, it's just such an honor to have you, Jared. I know you're going to win. I absolutely have faith in that, and I'm speaking that into into this right now, into this whole process. Uh, and I really, really commend you for, uh, want to thank you for your service to our nation, and uh, thank you again for working so hard and, and being the force that you are that's going to really you know you have an opportunity here to really change how law enforcement is done and create a model for that for across our whole country so i want to thank you again thank you and god bless you and your family sir thank you likewise brother all right folks we'll be back in a couple days with another episode of good lad unscripted the podcast everyone else has left the call